Thank you. Now, we are in a series, as was mentioned uh, by Mark, we are in this series uh, talking about the, the mothers of Jesus. We've been looking at uh, the mothers of Jesus that are recorded for us in this genealogy that Matthew chapter 1 lays out for us. And, and we've said that genealogies in the ancient world, they worked kind of like resumes. If you wanted to, to show your qualifications for a position, you listed your qualifications through your resume, which was typically a genealogy. Now, like any resume, you don't include everybody in a genealogy. You only include those in your genealogy that you really, really want people to know about. You want to highlight the parts of your resume that make you qualified for your job. And so Matthew has been highlighting the parts of Jesus' genealogy that make him qualified for his job. The weird thing about that is, is that he includes these women. Now, you wouldn't typically include women in an ancient genealogy to begin with, but what's especially strange about this is that Ma Matthew is including these so-called sort of notorious women. Uh, these were women who were uh, known for negative sexual connotations because of things that had happened in their lives. The thing that... that puts them all together as a group is the fact that they were outsiders. They were gender, uh, gender outsiders because, like I said, they were women recorded in this genealogy. They were not just gender outsiders, but they were ethnic outsiders. So Rahab obviously was a Canaanite. Tamar, we believe, was probably a Canaanite. Ruth, who we looked at last time, was a Moabite. And that's really shocking, actually, because... Uh, the Moabites were God's people's ancient enemies. They were, they were cursed by God uh, because they refused to help the Israelites as they were making their way through the desert. They refused to give them food. Uh, they're the ones who hired Balaam to get Balaam to curse the Israelites. They uh, had their women go and try to seduce the Israelite men and bring them into sin and bring them into uh, mixed marriages, to the point where God finally said, you know, um, no Moabite will ever be allowed to enter my presence forever, even to the 10th generation. So that's Ruth. But each and every one of these women, because of their past, because of the things that they had done, they would have been excluded from God's presence. Throughout the Old Testament, we read in several places the things that would disqualify a person from being in the presence of God. Leviticus 18 is one of those places. Deuteronomy 22, Deuteronomy 23. These are also places where we read about this. Each and every one of these women would have been disqualified from being in the presence of God. And yet, Matthew says that Jesus brings them into his family. Look. It's Christmas time. We're getting into the season of Christmas parties, right? Who do you want to come to your Christmas party? You want people like that? People with this kind of checkered past? This kind of, of record? You know, maybe you're going to have your kids bring friends over over Christmas to hang out. And, and what, if what if your kid came home with a friend 
who had this kind of history? How would you feel about that? Do you want people like this within your family history? Do you have these kind of people in your family? When you get together, you've got that crazy uncle who's a flat earther or something. And, and you know, whenever they show up at the family gathering, everybody kind of crosses their fingers and hopes that they don't make a scene and try to give you a, a PowerPoint presentation demonstrating that the earth is completely and utterly flat. Or that, that rabble-rousing, that, that one black sheep in the family who uh, people don't really like to talk about because whenever you do talk about that person, it's always negative and it's always done with a bit of head-shaking and a bit of going, yeah, well, you know, who, what do we do about him or what do we do about her? We can't, we can't really do anything about it, uh, but, but there they are. Are those the kind of people you would, you would like? at your Christmas party? Do you have that family member who, uh, because of them, uh, your family name kind of has a taint on it? You know, when, when you introduce yourself to people and you say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and they go, oh, what's your last name again? And you say such-and-such, and they go, oh, are you so-and-so's brother? Or are you such-and-such's sister? And you go, yeah. My poor sister who is two years younger than me, had to follow me through high school. And that wasn't always easy for her because, you know, let's face it, we judge people based upon their associations, and she was associated with me, and so there were some teachers that had some preconceived notions about what kind of student she was going to be like, and it made things a little bit harder for her. Maybe you're that black sheep in your family. Maybe you're that person that the family is just kind of getting tired of. You know, you have, you have broken promises over and over again. You have burned bridges. You're the person that makes a scene at the, at the family gathering. And you say that you do it because you're the person who likes the issues to be brought on the table and not hidden from everybody, but you're actually kind of a, 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 a hothead. Or maybe you've done things in the past, you've, you've, been, you've, you've broken the law and you've been convicted of, of, of something. Or you've, uh, you've done something in a public forum that has sort of tainted you. And whenever you go home, if you even feel like you can go home, uh, even if you've cleaned yourself up and you know, you've, you've, you've done the hard work of, of trying to, to straighten out, you can't shake the reputation that you have. And so when you, when you go to visit your family, you can't help but feel judged by your mom and dad or by your siblings what we need to see in these stories, friends, is that each and every week, Jesus is welcoming an outsider into his family. And because that's what Jesus is like, Hebrews chapter 2, verses, verse 11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. So if you're the black sheep of the family, if you're the one who's got the past, who's got the, the history that weighs you down so that when people mention your name, they shake their head and they, they, 
nod knowingly, please understand, Jesus welcomes you into his family and is not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. In fact, he delights, as we see in this genealogy, he delights to show you off. He delights to say that you are a trophy of grace, that you who are so messed up, who are broken and bleeding and feel guilty and weighed down and feel ashamed of your history and your past, Jesus loves to identify himself with you, just like he does with these women in this genealogy. He doesn't hide them. He puts them right there, front and center in his family tree. And why does he do that? To display his grace, to show that he, these are his people. And amazingly enough, in each of these cases of these women, it's precisely in their sin that God works his redemptive purposes for that genealogy. Rahab was a prostitute. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. Ruth was a pagan widow with no children. And in those stigmas, in those things that were seen as sinful, those things that, that, that were uh, the source of them being uh, uh, isolated from and separated from the family of God, it's precisely in those things that God worked his redemption in order to fulfill the genealogy of our Savior. What I'm trying to tell you is this, is, is that if you are that black sheep, it's not just that Jesus delights in you, it's that whatever it is you've done, whatever that... That, that it is that you wear, that you kind of hold on to, that, that monkey on your back or that, that, that burden that you walk around with or that you feel is sort of the, the identi identifying uh, part of your character. Jesus works through that very thing, his redemption in your life. And when you come to this church and you hear testimonies from people becoming members, what you discover is that I'm not lying. It's true over and over and over and over and over and over again. That's how our God works. It's unbelievable. Now, When we get to verse 6 in Matthew chapter 1, it's a little bit different than what we've seen so far. When we get to chapter 6, we say, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Now, the second half of the verse says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Every other time when the, the woman is mentioned, it's her name that's given. This time, the name isn't given. Is that a slam on Bathsheba? How many of you ladies who are married want to be known as your husband's wife? Like, how, does Jessica want to be known as Paul's wife? No, you don't like that, right? And it looks like this is kind of a slam on Bathsheba because of the terrible thing that had happened in her life, but it's actually the opposite. You see, this is Matthew setting up a trap. He's putting a slam on David. 
Because you see, the people are listening to this genealogy, right? You know, uh, Judah and Perez and Perez and Hezron and Hezron and Ram and Aminadab. They're listening to all this. And then they, these women keep popping up. And the people who are listening, they're thinking to themselves, I don't want these, these women in the genealogy of my Messiah. I'm shocked to think that my Messiah would have this kind of history in their past. But Jesus, you see, J- Matthew, he is setting up a trap. They hear Tamar and they go, ooh. They hear Rahab and they go, whoa. And they're thinking, I don't want Jesus at my party. I don't want Jesus to be my Messiah. But then they hear David. They say, aha, verse 6, Jesse, the father of King David. And they go, yes, King David. Now we're talking. That's the kind of guy I want in my genealogy. That's where I want my Messiah to come from. David, the hero. David, the king. David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. He ushered in 40 plus years of prosperity and peace. Those were the good times. That was the highlight. He was Israel's best king. That's the guy we want. And then Matthew says, oh, and by the way, he was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. And that's the trap. Let me jog your memory. Many of you know this story, but I'll, so I'll be quite brief about it. But David was quite a popular young man. He did an amazing thing when he defeated Goliath on behalf of the people of Israel. And he became famous and he became popular. Now, King Saul was jealous of David. He didn't like that this, this young man was becoming so popular. And so he transpired to, or he, sorry, uh, conspired to have him killed and so David had to leave and so he flees we read about how he flees into the wilderness and he he kind of becomes this dashing romantic figure you know he's he's a little bit like Robin Hood he's on the lamb he's on the run but he's a good guy he's the kind of guy that that you can you can you can identify with and he goes on the lamb with a bunch of friends his closest friends they were known as his mighty men and you read in the book of, of, of Samuel about these, these acts of valor and these acts of, of greatness and, and brotherhood that these mighty men performed on David's behalf. They did things for him and with him that were amazing and astounding. And, and David formed this incredibly intimate bond with these guys. And one of those guys was a guy by the name of Uriah. And he was a great soldier, and he was a great friend of David. You can imagine that at night in the wilderness, around the, the, the fire, he and, and these mighty men, they're sitting around, and they're talking, and they're, they're sharing their war stories, and they're uh, uh, reliving the adventures that they've had together. They're bonded very, very tightly. Now, fast forward a num- number of years later. Saul is gone. David has risen to the throne. David has conquered his enemies. And we read that David, one day, is when all his men are out at war, he's just walking around on the roof of the palace and he sees this beautiful woman and he has to have her and so he gets her and he sleeps with her and she gets pregnant no problem David knows how to solve this problem he calls Uriah this woman's husband back from the war And he's going to cover his tracks. And he says, hey, you know, you've been working really hard out there. You've been living the hard life on the land, going to war, etc. You need a little bit of a break, some R&R, go home. He says, bathe your feet. That basically means sleep with your wife. Get pampered a little bit with her. And Uriah refuses. 
He says, how could I do something like that when my comrades, my brothers in arms are out there sweating and slaving the hard life under the sun, fighting our enemies? I can't do that. And David tries again. He brings Uriah over, has a feast, gets him really good and drunk, and then he tries to have him, have him go home and sleep with his wife, and Uriah won't do it. He is a man of honor. He is a man of integrity. A man of integrity. He refuses to do it. And so David, he goes, oh boy, this is a problem now. I know what I'll do tells Joab, commander of his army, he says, okay, Uriah's coming back. What I want you to do is I want, to put, I want you to put Uriah at the most dangerous part of the fighting. And then just as the enemy's attacking, I want you to actually withdraw. Don't tell Uriah you're doing this, but withdraw the troops so that Uriah's kind of left on his own and uh, he'll be killed. Joab does it. Sends a note to David saying, it's done. Deed is done. Uriah's been dead. Or, sir, Uriah is dead, and David sends back another note saying, Hey, well, you know, these things happen. This is war. Uh, war devours one man after another. He shows almost no guilt. Like, he's not like Lady Macbeth, you know, when, when Duncan gets killed, she helps conspire to have King Duncan killed, and she's overcome with guilt, and she's constantly washing her hands, going out, out, damned spot, because she's feeling the weight of guilt for her sin. This is not like the, the narrator in the telltale heart, you know, the, the Edgar Allan Poe story, where the, the protagonist kills a friend, and then he hides his body under the floorboards, and, and he thinks he hears this beating heart in his house time and after time after time, and it drives him insane. Because of his guilt, this isn't David. David sleeps quite soundly until, of course, the prophet Nathan comes and confronts him with his sin and David repents. Now, why am I telling you all of that story? Because of Matthew's trap. Remember, he's included all these women who are moral outcasts. And the people are listening and they're going, this... This, this one's an outcast, that one's an outcast. He's got, oh, he's got, Jesus has all these awful people in his, in his uh, lineage. But then he brings up David, and people go, ah, yes, David, the best person, right? He's the ultimate insider. He's a man after God's own heart. He is in the line of Judah. He reigned for 40 years on the throne in Israel. This is the golden age, and yet he has one big blot. What's that? Oh, he's an adulterer and a murderer. The ultimate insider is, is guilty of sins that are even worse than these women. So, so they could have been slamming these women in their heads as they're listening to the story. They don't want her in their family tree, but what about David? They like David. Oh, but wait. Remember what he did to Uriah's wife? Here's the point. Matthew is getting... He's getting at grace again. Ah, our beloved David, our revered David. What Matthew is saying is based on David's record, the ultimate insider, based upon his own moral record as an adulterer, as a murderer, he didn't deserve to be in the family of God any more than the, these sordid women with their sordid pasts. And yet the picture that Matthew is painting in his genealogy is all kinds of people with all kinds of stories and all kinds of history sitting at the same table. You have a foreigner, you have a prostitute, and you have a king. 
And they're all together at the table in the family tree of Jesus. Why? Because he came to bring salvation. And everybody needs that. The good people need it. The bad people need it. The upright people need it. The messed up people need it. The bankrupt people need it. The wealthy people need it. He is not ashamed to call any of them brothers and sisters who would know that they need his salvation, that even their righteousness is like filthy rags before the perfect, pure holiness of God. And they're willing to humble themselves and put their trust in Jesus. Doesn't matter who you are, that's who needs him. In our world, everything runs on the resume or the pedigree. In some cultures and some traditions, it's your family. It really is the family that you come from. In our culture, it's your money, how successful you are. Or maybe it's your home, how big it is or how beautiful it is or how modern it is. You know, we, I don't know if you do this. I know I do this. You, you meet someone and you discover, oh, from there? Like, I grew up in Niagara, okay? I escaped Niagara. Oh, you're from Niagara? I know what those people are like. They're like me. I don't want to hang around with people like me. Or you discover that someone has a degree from a particular institution. Whoa, that, they went to Harvard. Whoa, that's someone who I want to get to know. That's, that's someone who I, I want to hang out with. Or you discover that they're the, the CEO of a company or a corporation. You go, man, that's one impressive dude or, or woman. They're, they're amazing that they could be in that position, in, in that kind of an organization. They must be something else. Those are the people that I want to know. We judge on that. We do. We say, even in the church, that we're all the same because of grace, but we have our pecking order and our hierarchy of the things that impress us and the things that don't. And what Matthew shows us in this genealogy pointing us to Uriah's wife is not so much to show us that, that Bathsheba is in, but to show us that David, that grand Old Testament figure of greatness, a man after God's own heart, the man who wrote many of the Psalms that you love and that you read with pleasure and take great comfort in it, that man was desperately in need of the very same grace that each one of these foreign widows required. This is the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the great equalizer because the good aren't in and the bad aren't out. It's the humble who are in and the proud who are out. There's a wonderful story by a woman named Flannery O'Connor. She's a great Catholic writer from the mid-1900s. And she wrote this great book called Revel, or little, sorry, it's a short story called Revelation. And, and she illustrates this dynamic in the most amazing way. So the story is about Mrs. Turpin. She is a proper southern woman. And she's, the scene is she's sitting in a doctor's office in the 1930s. 
And all around her in this doctor's office are people from different races and different temperaments and body types and parts of town. And this is a small town, so she knows where people are from. And she's talking to another woman who's, who's a lot like her that she's met there. And they're both just sort of clucking their tongues about the different types of people in the room. Saying things like, you know how they are, you know how those people are. She is so self-righteous. Now, there's a young woman or a young girl sitting next to her and she's reading a book. And she's not saying anything. But she's listening to Mrs. Turpin and this other woman just kind of tear down these other people. And she's getting mad. She's getting madder and madder and madder. And the more Mrs. Turpin goes on blathering about, you know, how good she is and how bad everybody else is and how wrong they are, this young woman is listening and her name is Mary Grace. And as she finally gets madder and madder and madder, finally she, she takes her book and she throws it at Mrs. Turpin and she hits her in the eye. And then she leaps on her and knocks her to the floor and she starts choking her. And everybody else has to pull her off. And so the people all pull her off and she's looking angry at her. And Mrs. Turpin straightens her clothing out again. And she looks at her and she says, well, young lady, do you have something to say to me? And Mary says, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Yeah, now you know why I like Flannery O'Connor. She's crazy. Anyway, this, this shakes up Mrs. Turpin, okay? And somehow she realizes that actually God is speaking to her through this young girl. She, she can't really figure it out, but she, later on she starts arguing with God. Why me, she says to God. Now I'm quoting. It's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to. And break my back to the bone every day working and doing for the church. Exactly how am I like them? If you like trash better, go get yourself some trash then. I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy, she growled. Lounge around the sidewalks all day drinking root beer, dip snuff and spit in every puddle and have it all over my face. I could be nasty. And then a final surge of fury shook her and she roared, Who do you think you are? And at that moment, we read, the sun sets and she sees a purple streak in the sky. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And then she saw to her surprise, coming at the end of the parade, a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself, had always had a little bit of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable, as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were singing on key. Yet she could not see 
or sorry, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. In a moment, the vision faded. In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward, upward into the starry field and shouting, Hallelujah. God's favor. is the same for the insider and the outsider. It is not based on our works. It is not based upon how dignified we are, how straight-laced we are, uh, whether we can sing on key, whether we know how to use our money wisely rather than spend it all away and end up with nothing. God's economy is different than our economy. How can that be? How can that be when everything in our bones and everything in our world says, come on, I just deserve it a little bit more than the murderer than the drug dealer than the sexually immoral Look at the last verse of this passage. Verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Why did Matthew include that? 14, 14, 14. Six sevens. Okay? So what? Well, Jesus is the seventh seventh. In the Bible, the number seven represents perfection or completion and rest. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But on the seventh day, God rested. And the Old Testament Israelites, they were said, to, they were told by God to every seventh year to leave their fields fallow and not actually harvest them, to give the land time to rest. And after 49 years, seven cycles of seven, you'd get the 50th year, all the land was supposed to lay fallow, and the land was supposed to be returned to the ancestral family that owned it. So if your family had land that it ended up losing because of, for some reason, that, that, that they had to sell it to someone else, it had to be returned to you. It was the year of Jubilee. And what it was meant to do was it meant, was meant to represent the inner peace and shalom that God would ultimately bring, this, this rest. And Matthew is saying, Jesus is that Jubilee. The reason it can all be by grace, friends, is because for every single one of us, Jesus has accomplished for us the thing that we needed accomplished. We were rebels. 
We had decided to be our own masters and lords. We had decided that we knew better than God how we ought to live and what makes the good life. And so we decided to to take it on ourselves. And what we had done in that is we had mucked up our own lives. We had mucked up the lives around us. We have black sheep in our family. We have have relationships that are, are broken and it seems like they cannot be restored. We have turmoil in our world. We have oppression of one people over another people. We have warring nations against one another. We have the rise in the United States again of anti-Semitism. We think, haven't we gotten past this kind of garbage? And the answer is no, because what lives in the human heart is a desire to rule ourselves and therefore others. But Jesus came to put an end to that, to put an end to you and I living on that treadmill of performance so that we can rest. To prove ourselves through success, through comparison, it's all gone. The, the divider, the division between the insider and the outsider is gone. Listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. This is beginning at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the one foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in him. The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. You ever feel snubbed? Feel like the outsider? Do you look around this room and And do you think to yourself, I don't think I fit in. I don't have the look. I don't have the lifestyle. I don't have the social status. I don't fit. I'm sorry you feel that way. But I can tell you, Jesus knows you fit. And my prayer for this church is that anybody who comes here will know they fit. The rich, the poor, the stable and the unstable, the people whose lives are careening from one disaster to another, who are afraid to admit that behind it all, they're a mess. I pray that the gospel will so root itself in this community that nobody ever bats an eye at the fact that the person they're talking to has a story of brokenness and pain 
of sin, of foolishness. Because we are all in the same place. And we all live and breathe by the same grace. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your undeserved favor rests on all of us. Teach us to let your favor rest on others through us. May we not just be a friendly congregation, good at saying hi to new, new people. May we not just be a welcoming congregation. May we be a loving family to anyone who walks in these doors and says, I'm a mess, but I need Jesus, and so I'm here. You have broken down the walls that divide all people through the gospel of Jesus. May we be a living picture of that in Grace Valley Church, we pray. In your son's name.